0: The following audio is from LifeHouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or LifeHouseChurch.org. What's up, LifeHouse? It is such an honor to be with you. I'm privileged to join you, Wilson, Leitersburg, Chambersburg, and online. Let me just say how much of an honor it is to be right here with you. Uh, You know, the years go back for a while with Patrick. We got to serve in this community together. And can I tell you what I've learned about your pastor? I don't know of any other person that loves a city and a region more than Pastor Patrick. He absolutely loves this region. And you know, I'm reminded that it was a little less than 20 years ago, a God planted a seed in his heart that now has become a tree that has influence around the world. What is Lifehouse Church that you get to be a part of, that you get to call home? And so I'm so thrilled to be able to be a friend to your pastor. We're accountability partners. We talk every month about a topic of div- a range of different topics from how are we doing in our families, how are we doing in our personal lives, what about this ministry sh- situation, what's happening in our families, what's going on in our purity. We talk about those things and we challenge each other. And I'm so thankful that you gave Pastor Patrick and, and blessed him with the opportunity to go take a sabbatical I know you probably miss him as a church but I don't know if you realize how healthy this is in fact this is against Patrick's nature Patrick signs every email with the words fired up he, he doesn't go escape he runs into walls doesn't he and what I love is that you have graced him to allow him to take some time off this summer to, to really refocus to reflect, you know, he's been going hard at Lifehouse for, for nearly 20 years. That seed that has been growing, and, and you know, this just didn't pop up. This church didn't just come by accident, it came by work, it, it came by stress, it, it came with moments where he had no clue what was going to happen next whether there was going to be a dollar coming in the plate or, or whether somebody was going to show up at a service. And so to be able to give him time to rest and relax, it's against his very nature. Can I tell you, you will be thrilled when he gets back. He is gonna come back fired up, ready for what God has in the next season of ministry here through you and through him. And so thank you for that grace that you've given to your pastor. You will be blessed by it and our region will be blessed. By the way, I'm from Hagerstown, I'm a West Ender. Anybody West End? <laughs> You could be West End of Chambersburg as well. I'm from the west side, that's where I'm from, and so I know Hagerstown well. Uh, This has got a lot of roots here, and I love this place. You get to serve in Mansfield, Ohio. A little bit about myself. Uh, I will, in a couple weeks, celebrate 22 years of marriage to my wife, Allison. And uh, we met at Washington Bible College. She was the first young lady I met on campus. She saw me, she could not resist. She then a few months later proposed to me. We've now been married for almost 22 years. We have four sons. My oldest son is David, he is, he is 20 years old. My second son is 19, my third son is 16, and my fourth son is 14. We have a house full of testosterone. And so we have a lot of energy, a lot of excitement, and we are, we are thrilled to be With you. And I talked about my oldest son, David. I remember back uh, years and years ago when my son was about four or five years old. I don't know what toys your kids wanted, but when my son was four or five years old, this is going way back, he loved Thomas the Tank Engine. Anybody remember Thomas the Tank Engine? All campuses, just raise your hand. Anybody remember Thomas the Tank Engine? I mean, they were these little trains that had these odd little faces on them, and there were songs you would sing, and there were things that they would do. Well, he loved. Thomas the Tank Engine. And when I look back that many years ago, those toys were kind of freaky. I mean, a train with a face on it that talked. It's kind of weird. But he loved Thomas the Tank Engine. And so one Christmas, we decided to get him this Thomas the Tank Engine train table. I don't know if you've ever seen these things, but they sit about knee high, and they're meant for kids to be able to walk all the way around them. And so we had some of these trains, and he had some of the tracks, and so we decided to, to buy him this train table. And so Christmas came, and I decided on Christmas Eve night to build this elaborate train table. I didn't want him to open it. I actually wanted him to see it in place. And so that night, I began about 9 p.m. building this train table. And my idea was that he would come down the steps on Christmas morning, and he would see this gift, and he would be overwhelmed with joy, that he would be amazed at what his dad could do for him. And so I began at 9 p.m. and I built this thing. Now, I'm not the handiest guy in the world. And so I knew it was gonna take me a while. For some of you, you probably could build this thing in in 20 minutes. But nine o'clock became 10 p.m. 10 p.m. became midnight. And by 3 a.m., I had finished building this train table. But it was the most elaborate train table in the world. I had, I had this bridge that went over water. I had the train run up over a countertop and come back down. I had this place where there was a, a, a drawbridge that you had to use to be able to go different directions. This was the most elaborate train table anywhere built. Christmas morning came, 6 a.m. I wasn't tired, though. Why? Because I'm so excited to see his face getting this gift. And so we come down the steps and he go, sees it and just in surprise and all, he, he shouts out for joy, wow, and he runs down and he begins to play with the trains. And so I wanna go over to him and I wanna show him how to use this thing. And so I walk over and I get on my knees and and I begin to take his hands and I take the train out of this little cabinet below it and I pull it out and say, let me show you the bridge. Let me show you how you can draw up and you can spin the wheel and it draws the bridge up. And so I grabbed the toy and I began to show him and I never will forget this moment. You know what he does? He, He grabs the train out of my hand and he says, mine. Now I've been up. Till 3 a.m. I woke up at 6 a.m. to see this surprise. And this is what he gives me it's mine. Nobody, it's anything but yours. You didn't labor over it, you didn't buy it, you didn't build it, you did nothing for it. It's more my train than it is your train. It was anything but yours. Now we fast forward nearly 20 years. That train sits in a storage bin in our basement, in a storage room that we have, packed with things to remember when our boys were kids. And can I tell you, for some of us, this is what happens in our spiritual lives. God gives us gifts. The gift of our salvation, the the gift of prayer, the gift of the word, the gift of friends, the gift of a marriage, a gift of kids, the gift of relationships, the gift of a job, and what happens, and even the gift of the church. And what happens slowly is we begin to take it for ourselves and what was once special and uncommon and unique becomes common, ordinary, and lackluster. And slowly, what should draw us to the Father begins to pull us away, becomes normal, becomes everyday. I I wanna show you a story in the scripture that gives this picture. It's a story that I would dare say it's challenged my heart through the years. In fact, I would even go so far as to say it it haunts me a bit. It's an awkward passage when you read it. It doesn't seem to make sense, but then when when you get the glimpse of what it's really about, it transforms you greatly. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now let me explain a little bit about what's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Because I would dare say that this was King David. You know King David, one of the most well-known kings in history of Israel. And, and, And David, this was probably one of his biggest lessons. Believe it or not, even the story of David and Bathsheba, this moment was probably one of David's biggest lessons. What happened is David took over as king, and if you remember a little bit about Israel history, they came out of Egypt, they became a nation, and then they wanted a king, and so they made a man named Saul king. Saul became king of Israel. He was an okay king. He did some poor things. He did some good things, and at the end, he began to lose battles with the the wicked Philistines. And so he began to lose battles and eventually he dies in battle. David, who had been anointed king because of the evil of Saul, now becomes king. And the first thing you do, especially in that day and age, kings, they would go forth and they would actually revenge the loss of the previous king. And so David decides, I'm going into battle against the Philistines. I'm going to go defeat them. And so he enters into a battle with the Philistines and he defeats them. But as he's coming back to the land of promise, as he's coming back to Israel, he doesn't just make a direct route. No, he stops because he realizes that there's one thing that's missing in Israel. There's one thing that's missing. Saul didn't have it, but he felt they needed it. You know what it was? It was something called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you probably are aware of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a very special box. And by the way, the word Ark literally means box. It is a three and a half by two and a half box. It's made of a cake of wood. It's overladen with gold. It has two little cherubim at the top that face each other. And that center section is called the mercy seat. It's just a box. Inside of that box were three very important representations. Inside the box, there was a a pot of manna. Manna was what God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness. Inside that that ark, there was also uh, a a tablet of stone, those tablets of stone that were the law. It represented God's law to the people. And also, there was a staff that was Aaron, the sidekick of Moses. And and in the middle of the wilderness, Aaron's staff actually budded into flowers. It would be like taking a stick and having it grow apples immediately. And so they put it in the box to remember God's provision, God's power, and God's law. But it wasn't just a shadow box. It wasn't just a a, a box to remember history. It wasn't just a time capsule. No, that box, was a representation of God himself. In fact, I want to show you this. All the way back in the book of Exodus, we find this verse. This is when God gave them the box. And it says this in Exodus 25. It says, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat of that box, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. I want you to see what God says to them. He says, this box, is gonna be the place where I speak to you. It's gonna be the place where I show myself to you. This box was not merely a history box. This box was a physical representation of the manifold presence of God in Israel. It was a representation that God was indeed with them, that God was leading them, that God loved them, that God was gracious to them, that God was directing them. This was the place where God would show up. And so he gave some laws, some laws that said it can't be touched. It can only be seen once a year by the high priest. It shouldn't be, should be carried a certain way. And so there these laws around it. So we go back to the story of David. For 75 years, this ark had not been in Israel. This ark that was given to the Israelites to represent God's presence wasn't there. And so David, as his first step of king, his first place of being king says, I'm gonna go get the ark. And so he goes and gets the ark. And I want to pick up the story as they're bringing the ark back. 2 Samuel chapter 6, this is what we find in this story. It says, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart. So they take it off the cart of the Philistines, and now they put it on a new cart. And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And then it goes on and it says, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. They were throwing a party. They were were getting the band in place. They they said, hey, get the DJ to start making some tracks. You know why? Because God's coming home. The representation of God is coming back. God's presence will be with us once again. So get the DJ rolling, get the band playing. Let's party on. And all of a sudden, we see this direction take place. It says, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And then it continues, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. You know, read this story and all of a sudden you think it's going one direction and all of a sudden it just turns and makes a U-turn in a different direction, a direction you would never expect. All of a sudden, what becomes was a party becomes a moment of devastation. What was a celebration becomes a moment of question. Here was the ark traveling. They were celebrating and it says the oxen stumbled on the threshing floor of Nacon. Now, I don't want you to miss the subtlety here. The subtlety of this moment is is magnificent when you get it. Because in the Jewish culture, the threshing floor was the smoothest part of the route. Why? Because the threshing floor was on the top of the hill and it was a place where they would willow the wheat. And so they would throw the wheat in the air with a willowing fork and the wind would blow the chaff away and the wheat would fall down to the platform. And so this would have been the smoothest place of the journey. By the way, isn't that a point worth making? Isn't it true in life that sometimes the smoothest places, the smoothest times, become the most dangerous? Isn't it true when things are just sailing along, when things seem to be going well, something happens to get our attention? Sometimes the, 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 the moments in life where we face smooth moments become dangerous moments. Why, because when it's not dangerous, when we're climbing the mountain and going through the valleys, we gotta pay attention. When you're going to the threshing floor, you don't pay attention. And so Uzzah, in what looks like good face, puts out his hand to protect the ark, and he dies. Uh, I read this and I'm always overwhelmed that the Bible is this honest with us. You know, a lot of people, they read the Bible and they think, you know, the Bible seems to be so offensive. And sometimes we, we start to read it and we think that we're the only ones that f- have had offense with the Bible. But you want know to find all through the scripture is many of us writers were offended by what God did. God is, is not a respecter of offenses. There are times where what we believe will contradict what we see, where what happens in life doesn't seem to go the way we think it should go, and so we believe this should take place, but what we see is different. And can I just, in honesty, say to us today, if you believe that God, God should never contradict you, then you don't have a God, you have an imaginary friend. If you try to live life following God, there are gonna be times where that rubs up against your life, where it doesn't go the way you expect. And this story reminds us, and we see Samuel putting it in the Bible to remind us of this truth, that sometimes God contradicts what we see. God contradicts what we believe should happen. God goes against the grain. Now David here spends 90 days pondering this moment. Three months, they stop and they wait, they do nothing. They wait to determine what is the best next step. And then we pick up the story with what's next. It says this in Second Samuel, it continues in this way. It says, so David went out. It says, and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom. So they left it at this place called Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all his house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. I want you to notice the contrast between these two stories, these two moments. The first time they put it on a new cart. This time they pick up the ark and they carry it the way it was supposed to be carried. By the way, can you imagine being a pole bear carrying the ark and they call you up and say, hey, we need your help. I can imagine most of the, the pole bearers, the ark bearers, called out sick that day. Now, I knew what happened to Uzi. You're not getting me in that. You're not getting me in that, David. No way. Secondly, it says that they sacrificed after six steps. In fact, the sister book to 2 Samuel is Chronicles. And Chronicles says that they sacrificed every six steps. Every six steps. They stopped and they did a, what was called a burnt offering. I want you to think about that. A burnt offering was where they would take a cow, usually a heifer, and they would burn it to ash. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not a farmer. I burned a few burgers on the grill. But can you imagine every six steps burning a cow as a burnt offering to God to ash? Can you imagine how long that would take? And that's what they did. And then it says, David put on a linen ephod and he danced with all of his might. Now you might say, well, what's the difference with that? Well, well, the implication is that he took off his kingly robes, his kingly garments, and he put on the undergarment of a priest. In fact, a linen ephod, if I can put it in our terminology, is an adult onesie. He puts on the garments of the priest because this matter is not about him anymore. This matter is not about his victory. This matter is not about even the nation. This matter is all about God. Now you might say, all right, Dave, what does this have to do with me? Like, are you gonna tell us there's something that we shouldn't touch? There's something that we shouldn't do? Well, what are you gonna tell us? How are we gonna go down this road? Can I I tell you this? I think we find the point in the contrast between how they approach the ark in the first place and how they approach the ark the second time. What do I mean? They took great care, and it's deeper than just merely sacrificing every six steps. It's deeper than wearing a linen ephod. No, instead, what we realize in this passage is that David confesses something very important. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 15, David says these words. David says, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. Here's the point. The point is this, is that you and I so easily in our lives can allow holy things to become common things. This is the main point, is that you and I slowly in our lives can allow holy things to slowly become common things. Right? It could be the church. It could be prayer. It could be our walk with God. It could be our spiritual journey. It could be our relationships, our marriages, our families. And all of a sudden, what happens is these things that should be holy become commonplace. They become normative. They become lackluster. They just kind of become common. And slowly we allow holy things to become common things instead of being an active pursuit of our lives they become an artifact we remember in our life. Instead of being something we run after, it's something we just remember, that we have, that we just do with. Now, this idea of holiness stirs up a lot of thoughts in our minds, doesn't it? Because when we think of holiness, our, our, our instinct is kinda look at holiness from a negative perspective, don't we? Like, have you ever heard the term, you ever met somebody and you thought in your mind, well, those people are just holier than thou. You ever thought that before? And what we try to do is label people like holiness means they're a moral nerd. Like somehow they got it all together and they're just kind of moral and that's how they are. And so we have a negative connotation when it comes to holiness. And when we think of holiness, I don't know about you, but what comes to my mind when I think of holiness, I think of judgment. I think of condemnation. I think of someone sticking their bony finger in my face saying, be holy, right? That's what I picture. But gonna tell you, that's not holiness, Holiness, according to the word defined in the scripture, is this beautiful term. Holy literally means, in both Greek and Hebrew, the Old Testament and New Testament, it literally means to be set apart, to be without equal, to be uncommon. In fact, anything that's attached to holiness goes out of the sphere of the ordinary into a special place. And so when we talk about holiness, it's not just merely, it's not condemnation and judgment. No, it's unique it's uncommon. It's, it's out of the sphere of the ordinary. And so when we talk about God being a God of love and God of grace and God of mercy, all through the Bible, holiness and mercy and grace actually go hand in hand. Why? Because how can you have abounding love without a holy God? How can you have amazing grace without a holy God? How can you have mercy that will will go past what we can imagine and do what we can never accomplish without God being holy? See, a holy God is what makes God's love so powerful. It's a holy God that makes grace so amazing. It's a holy God that makes his mercy so impactful in our lives. You you might be here, and and maybe you're at a campus, and and you're saying, you know, why would God accept me? Why would God want me? You know why? Because he's holy. He's so unique, he's so so out of the ordinary that he's able to save you, that he's able to rescue. In order to prove that, what did Jesus do? God proved his holiness by doing and bringing salvation in the most unique way, didn't he? He went on the cross, he died for sin. He then rose again to prove that his love was sufficient. His grace was amazing, his mercy can change your life. Only a holy God could do that. Only a God who is absolutely holy can love in that way, can offer grace in that way, can bring mercy in that way and can change your life in that way. See, God is so unique, it makes his love unique. God is so unique, it makes his His grace unique. God is so unique, it makes his mercy uncommon. Now, if we move forward, we find this same perspective in the New Testament. We come to the New Testament and we see this, this same picture. In fact, 1 Peter, Peter, the, the apostle who understood God's holiness in a unique perspective. Remember, Peter was the one that denied Jesus and then God restores him and makes him the leader of the church of Jerusalem. And Peter writes these words in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter writes that you and I are to be holy because God is holy. Because God is unique, you and I now have a calling to be unique. Because God is uncommon, you and I are now given the potential to be uncommon, to be different. To be unique, I want to give you four thoughts as to what it looks like to really live a holy life. Number one Christianity is not just static addition, but dynamic reflection. Christianity is not just static addition, it's dynamic reflection. What do I mean by that? It's not just something that we add to our lives and it sits there, it's not a box. It's not a box we check. It's not even a little step that we take. It becomes a dynamic reflection in our lives. It changes us from the inside of Christianity, is dynamic in its approach. It's not a grab and go mentality. It's that when I come to Christ, now He begins to do a journey. And that journey is not a journey of happiness, it's a journey of holiness. What does that mean? The holiness is not condemning me, it's making me what I can never be. It makes me unique, He makes me uncommon. He makes me now live with a different perspective. Now there's something special that no one else has. Why? Because I've been rescued by Christ. Christianity is a dynamic reflection of God's great holiness. You and I now love in a way that no one else can love. You and I now show grace in a way that no one else shows grace. You and I now offer mercy in places where mercy usually would be kept. Why? Because we're holy. We we, we live a holy life. Christianity is not just a static addition to my life. It's a dynamic reflection that takes over my life. And secondly, uh, here's what holiness looks like. Holy living begins where ignorance ends. For David and Uzzah, they acted in ignorance. They didn't understand fully what they were actually trying to do. But, but holy living really begins where ignorance ends. In fact, you notice in the text there, 1 Peter, it says, do not be conformed to your former ignorance. I don't know if you've ever done anything that was ignorant before where you did something you didn't know you were doing. Like I remember years ago I was on a mission trip to Mexico. And I was actually a youth intern at a church in Washington, DC, and uh, I went to, as, a, as a sponsor of the youth trip. And so I was out and about, and we were doing door-to-door evangelism, where we were going to door, door-to-door to invite people to church. And we were inviting them to a, to a big kind of episode, a, a big uh, unique event we were going to have. And so we were inviting them to there. And so I would go up to homes, and because I was a youth leader, they gave me a young lady to be my translator. I knew enough Spanish to kind of get by, and so they gave me a young translator. She was a youth there in Mexico. And so we began to go door-to-door and I would go up to the doors, and I would knock like this. No problem. We do that all the time, right? Knocking on a door, you put a little rhythm to it. Well, what happened? I did this on every door, 30, 40 doors that day. Every time this, this young lady who was with me, the, the Mexican young lady, she would look at me and go, no, 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 and then she would laugh, and I thought she was joking around, saying this is probably not a good thing, but it's funny, and don't be so funny, And I just kept doing it because she's a teenager. That's what you do. You keep being silly. So I I went to every door. So I got to the end and came back to the pastor of the church. And I said, hey, you know, I noticed that none of the doors opened for us. Like we didn't get to invite a single person. I would knock every single time. And so he grabbed the translator and said, what's going on? And she began to describe in Spanish what happened. Here to find out, this knock in Spanish, specifically in the place we were at in Mexico, it means you're saying something very bad about someone's mother. Like I'm talking the mother of all words. You're saying something tremendously bad about the mom of the house. No wonder no one opened the door. I acted in ignorance. Now, now here's David and Uzzah, right? They, they, they should have known better, but they didn't. See, holy living begins where ignorance ends. It begins where I realize I don't want to act like I don't know what's happening. No, because now I have Christ, and in Christ, I understand now how I live. Yes, I'm going to walk with a stumble at times, and I'm going to to falter at times, but I understand that my life has a different calling, that all of a sudden I see things differently. My family's different. My relationships are different. All these other things now take a new form. Why? Because I've been called holy. I'm unique. I'm set apart. I'm common. third observation is this. We find from David and Uzzah that direction trumps intention. Our direction will trump our uh, intention. David, Uzzah had great intention, but direction trumps intention. You ever driven in a car? and You're driving in that car and you look out and you see something absolutely beautiful. Maybe it's a tree or it's a lake or it's somewhere you never saw before and you look out and if you're single, maybe it was that hot other person. And you're looking out and this beautiful thing attracts you and what happens in that moment when you're driving? Don't you naturally begin to go away? You pull away. You begin to hit a curb. You begin to hit the guardrails. Why? Because you can have the right intentions when you drive, but your direction trumps your intention and can I tell you this is true spiritually your direction trumps your intention Uzzah had a good intention David had good intentions but good intentions don't necessarily equate proper approach when it comes to God the question becomes will I go in the right direction in my life and can I tell you the difference between direction and intention is where I put my attention if I want to go in the right direction, i got to focus in that area. i got to look for that answer. See, holiness is not perfection. Holiness is pursuit. Holiness is moving my attention so I go in the right direction. That God takes me where only he can take me. That he takes me in a unique course, a holy course, an uncommon course that brings him glory and me good. Direction trumps Intention. Maybe you're here, maybe you're at a campus and and you've been wondering about this faith. Listen, you can have the right intentions, but will you go in the direction of Christ? Will you say, I'm gonna take a step forward in the right direction with Christ? Maybe going to next steps or starting point and, and finding out the answer. Will you take a step in the direction that God is calling you? That's holy living. Holy living is not right intentions. It's right direction. And lastly, don't miss the small and common moments in the here and now. Right now, in our lives, right now in this place across every campus, God is working uniquely. God is working in a holy way, an uncommon way in your life, in your soul, in your heart right now. He's at work in a way that that he's not at work in other people's lives similarly. No, he's coming at you directly. And he's at work. He's at work in your marriage. He's at work with your kids. He's at work in that job. He's at work, right? He's a holy God, and so everything becomes holy those small minutiae of details of my life now become uncommon. And he beckons me. He beckons me to see it, to have eyes to see what he's doing in our souls, where he wants to take us, what direction he wants to lead us that will absolutely change our lives and not allow the holy things to become common things. I want to ask us to bow our heads and close our eyes and just ponder this truth You know, for David and Uzzah, there were right intentions, but they acted in ignorance. They didn't think about the results. So God wanted to point that out. He wanted us, even today, to ponder that truth, that we don't allow the holy things to become common things, that we see, as followers of Christ, everything becomes uncommon, everything becomes unique, Every relationship takes a new form. Every job takes a different approach. Our posture changes, just as their posture changed about the ark. So maybe today, today is a day your direction will trump your intention. God, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for this reminder because so often, Lord, I'm like a wandering sheep and I'm going to and fro and I'm trying to find my way. And, and, and slowly, Lord, the thing that should be the most important in my life, the thing that should have gripped my soul deepest becomes something common and, and just ordinary. And it loses its luster. It becomes inactive. And yes, we may attend church and yes, we may serve. But, but God, there's not that, that the fire in us for what only you can do, a holy God and a common people to make we who are common, uncommon and holy. So God, may we pursue holiness in all things, not condemnation, but but uniqueness, uniqueness in love, uniqueness in grace, uniqueness in mercy, all for your name, our holy savior, our good and faithful God the one who is worthy of our lives, the one who one day we will see the angels of heaven crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.